Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Welcome to the commemoration of Shaku Soen. Just as uh, I was sitting in the meeting room waiting for the service to start, it seems the first snowflakes appeared in the air. Harvest of a different kind. This session starts out with this service that we have for Chakusoen. And I would like to just tell you a little bit about what such a service is like. I'm sure you have gone and seen, if you were here for some time, these services on and off. Uh, but sometimes the question is, what is it about? Why do we chant the same chant twice? I just did that. Why is the person leading the ceremony going up, offering incense, and incense again and again, and bowing and bowing and all of that? It's a specific way of doing things. And even here at Daibosatsu Zendo, at Kongoji, of course it's done a little bit different than in other places. Very great lesson in that, that even if you live with your cousin, the food will taste a little bit different. And that's fine. That's the wonderful teaching of the many, many myriad ways of doing things. So in the beginning of such a service, I would call this the, the ancestral service that we hold here uh, an abridged uh, Hansai service. Hansai is where the departed is being offered a meal. It's a nice thought, isn't it? Even if you're dead, once a year you get a meal. It's right up there on the tray. It's prepared with the same attention and with the same spirit and heart as the meals that we eat. It's not only the meal that's offered, but there's also green tea, some nice invigorating libation. Libation, right? Libation and sweets fruit, light, incense, and flowers. Why would we do that? Shaku Soen's been dead for a long time. He died in 1919. Oh, that's 100 years ago. 100 years ago, Shaku Soen passed away. And we are sitting here and we are talking about him 100 years later. Services like this in the context of a Sangha can be very important in keeping that spirit of our ancestors alive. And there's really nothing magical about that. 
I am talking about the living spirit of the Buddha. Buddhism, living Buddhism, is a Buddhism that naturally was transmitted from the Buddha to the next generation, on and on. And it is incumbent on us to give on the glimpses, the teachings, the offerings that we have received through this long chain of human beings. It's an unbroken chain. We all have an unbroken chain in us, unbroken chain of DNA that goes back to some primordial origin of life as we know it. You all have your own lineage. Everything that we offer the departed, that we offer the spirit of what Shakusoin stands for, is purified over the smoke from some very nice little sticks of wood that give this wonderful smell when you burn them. And everything is purified in a circular motion of one, two, and the third time you go halfway and then you pull it to yourself and offer it to the Buddha by lifting it above your eyes. You all played a very important part in chanting, in chanting the Daihishu, the great compassionate Dharani. Chanting as an exercise in Zen is not only an exercise in dedication, it's an exercise in making a connection between the memorization at some point, making it part of your body, because once you chant these chants for a long time, they are not memorized anymore. You become those chants. You become the muscle memory. You become the manifestation, the embodiment of the chant. Your breath is what gives life to it. And so we are all together giving our life force to keeping up this teaching of the Buddha, this lineage of an insub, un, yeah, what's the best word for that? It is not substance, but it is not insubstantial. So passing on these teachings, passing on that what cannot be passed. So that was the first part. Of course, while there's the chanting, the doshi, the person leading the service, standing in for the Buddha, goes around and then makes three prostrations. We all do these prostrations. They're called sampai. In an abbreviated service like this one, we only have sampai. It goes there, it might be nine prostration, kyupai, 
or Ju Hapai, 18 prostrations for really, really big services. That's how your legs get really strong when, you're, when you become a priest, you know, because you go down and you go up. After the service, Inosan chanted the dedication. Eko one is the word in Japanese for it. And it is the dedication that speaks about offering light, incense, tea, flowers, fruit and sweets to Shakusoen, whose name was chanted as well. That was the first part of our service. The second part that repeats every time when there is a teisho, when there is a talk, is, a, is an ancestral service as well. Uh, I think it would be called Soshi Fugin, so the ancestral service where, again, Taihishu, the great compassionate Dharani, is offered. Once again, we breathe and give ourselves to it. Incense is offered. And the names of a good number of ancestors is chanted. That was the second service we had. The third for the opening of uh, the talk, there's always a little a short, uh, mostly taken from the Japanese text recitation. Today we had Kozen Daito Kokshi Yuikai, the last admonitions of Kozen Daito, who was the second uh, Rinzai ancestor of the Japanese Otokan lineage, of the lineage in which we find ourselves. So that's what we did. There is no need to understand it, really. But if you do it, like everything that is formal that we do, it's important that we really throw ourselves fully into it. If it is gasho, in which we disappear in complete silence. If it is just a seated bow, all of that in this context of session is an exercise for ourselves to embody our passion of being alive. So that's my little talk about formality. I was thinking, what should I talk about this time? It happens to be that I do so in Shaku. Uh, it's now in different places, four years in a row. And it's not long enough that I can recycle what I talked about four years ago uh, in that sense. But it's nice to see and to learn as we go through the times of doing the same things, what appear to be the same things over and over, to actually discover there is no repetition. So today, let's talk a little bit about Soin Shaku and how he fits into the very fabric of the universe that made us all be here. Because it can be said fairly strongly, I think, that without Soin Shaku, we would probably not be sitting here. 
not sitting here as practitioners of Rinzai Zen. Because without Soen Shaku, we don't know how Rinzai Zen would have made it to America. The monk's name of the person who we call Soen Shaku or Shaku Soen really was Kogaku Soen. Now, it's the Western way to think. We say first name, last name, yeah, given name and family name. The Japanese name order is first comes your family name and then comes your given name. This is a very interesting case because Kogaku Soen, I, I was not able to actually find out his birth family's name. But he was known while he was alive as Shaku Soen. So when people in the Western culture saw it, they thought, well, Shaku must be the family name. And Soen is the first name. So we'll say Soen Shaku. But really, Shaku is just a honorific uh, particle that is said before the name of the person. It would be like Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Reverend, instead of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Shaku Soen. Shaku is the title for a Buddhist priest, very often used there. The, the character, if you want to look it up, is the first character of Shakyamuni's name. Oshakasama. Shakasama is Shaku, is the first character. So that points to the fact that this is Buddhist clergy. Shaku Soen. His monk's name, though, was Kogaku Soen. Kogaku. Ko means flood. Water everywhere, completely flooded. Gaku means mountain peak. That's a lot of water. The water that even rises above Mount Sumeru above the highest mountain, the center of the universe, is Kogaku. Quite a name. And So-en. So is the character for... Yeah. Spirit, religion, all of that together. But also essence the essence of things. So, and N is performance or play. The essence of the universe at play. A wonderful name, Kogaku Soen. Kogaku Soen was born in 1860. And he died in 1919. When you search for works of Kogaku Soen, you will find a lot of calligraphies because in the world of Bokuseki, of the uh, ink traces that the Zen masters write, he is known as Kogaku Soen. And there are many pieces out there, Bodhidharmas looking very fierce. And of course, also uh, 
very short phrases like every Bokseki master writes. If you look for published things, you will have to look for Shaku Soen. So he had two different things. He was quite qualified, you know. He went to a private university in Japan, in Tokyo. And as I talked about it last year, I talked about Shaku Soen as a person and that while everybody always writes that he graduated from college, he actually did not. He did not finish because uh, the circumstances of his life were quite, quite unique. His teacher was Imakita Kosen. Imakita Kosen was born in 1816 and died in 1892. And Shaku became his successor at very young age. I think he was 24 or so. And then go to college. Huh? What a proposition. First you become a Zen master, and then you go to college, you have to study English and calculus. He didn't really succeed so well in that because it was not as interesting as he, he found the other spiritual things. Shaku Soen was very well known in the Rinzai establishment because how often do you find people so gifted that they are early bloomers and when he went to college, he kind of deteriorated a little bit in his practice and he was found drinking and uh, not hanging out in the right kind of society for Buddhist monks. And so some older teacher said to him, hey, wouldn't it be nice for you to go and visit the birthplace of Buddhism and study the old language of the Buddha? which he did. He went to Sri Lanka and he stayed there for several years living with the Theravada monks, learning Sanskrit. It's quite something. And then he returned. He returned, Imakita Kosen died, his teacher died and he became his successor at the temple, the temple in Kamakura, Engakuji. What I also spoke about last year was the time when he served as an army chaplain. I don't know if you recall that. In the Russo-Japanese War, he volunteered as an army chaplain for the Japanese army, and he went over. He had these, these ideas of the Buddhist army chaplain will come and he will bring Buddhism to these enemies. It was really not at all the way that he imagined it would be. 
mostly he had to attend to dying soldiers. There's one place in his diary where he writes that he could not even chant the sutras in front of two mutilated corpses because he was choking up seeing these atrocities that human beings are able to commit. It was so bad that he had to go back to Japan. He spent six months in a spa trying to recover. And if we were to speak in modern terms, what he was going through would be called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It made a big change in him, a very big change. So Shakuso and Kogakuso and set foot on American soil for the first time in 1893. In 1893, he was selected as the leader of a Japanese delegation of religious representatives who were participating in the Congress, or the part, it was called the Parliament of the World's Religions, which was an event attached to the 1893 World Fair in Chicago. The World Fair used to be something really outstanding. We can't imagine it nowadays with having all this flood of entertainment and information at our fingertips. At that time, Millions of people would travel to the World Fair. It would last almost a whole year to accommodate all those visitors. It was a showing off of various nations. They brought Japanese crafts, craftsmen into Chicago and later Kansas City, I think, to build Japanese buildings to be displayed. Many other countries, Thailand, brought people who lived there for over a year to work at that World Fair. And the end of the 19th century theosophy and a more openness to religions around the world was quite prevalent in the intellectual class. And so that theme of bringing together all the world's religions led to that Congress, to that Parliament of World Religions. Parliament is such an interesting word because in a Parliament, uh, first of all, you talk. 
and then you talk about something and then you decide something. But really, there were no decisions to be made here. It was just a bringing together of all those various uh, religions and, and traditions. And so when Shaku came, and since he didn't really finish college, he really didn't study English. He wasn't speaking very well or at all. For that reason, he brought with him a translator, one of his students. And many of you know who that student was. It was Daisets Tetaro Suzuki, Dr. Suzuki. There's one specific way of looking at Buddhism that was quite interesting to learn about at that in, in Japan. At that time, Japanese Buddhism was thought to be like the Japanese people, superior. Nihonjinron. So there was a philosophy and an ideology of that we are better than the rest of the world. And so is Buddhism. The Japanese Buddhism is better than the other religions. So let's take these opportunities. They are ready now for us to come and introduce them to the real thing. We always find that. Think back at your practice. If you're practicing for quite some time, you might remember at some time that where you thought, yeah, this is it, and I should help people or tell other people this is it. What you're doing is wrong. <laughs> Here, try this. But so that also happens in a very, in a much larger context. So even Shaku Soin probably was a little in that direction. And it's true. The Western hemisphere, the Western culture was open to change, open to enrichment. And who came, who else came to that Congress, to that Parliament of World Religions? Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda. I used to think it was Ramakrishna, but Ramakrishna had already passed away. But his principal student, Swami Vivekananda, came. And of course, he spoke beautifully English. He really charmed the whole audience. The first Ramakrishna Society in Boston, Massachusetts, was founded the next year. Through Swami Vivekananda. People were ready. But then Soen Shaku, he spoke in Japanese. And then Diti Suzuki translated. There's always something with translation when you listen to the original and then the translation, it always makes it diff more difficult to bring the point across. And so most of So and Shaku's talks went by without many people 
taking too great a note of it. A few did. A few did. And they invited him to, to, to come back later. And as I had told you about when he returned from the war, that coincided with the time of the Russell family inviting him back to America. So in his diary it says, I am going to America to get better. Now that you know what he was getting better from, it makes quite a different impression. So he came back to America. Again, he was bringing his translator, Diti Suzuki. But he also brought somebody else. Now, Kimpo-san knows that so well, <laughs> and I won't even ask. Many of you know it well. It is Nyogen Senzaki who was supposed to come. But, of course, Nyogen Senzaki's life was not easy. So he got so sick that he couldn't join them on the same boat. So Soen Chaku is the first Rinzai Zen teacher, Rinzai Zen monk we know about who came to America. And that's why we have this commemoration today, 100 years after he died. Without him, the chain of events that has led us to be here would not have been initiated. His talks would, were put together in a book. And I think it can easily be called the first Zen book, the first book about Zen in the English language. And it's called Sermons of a Buddhist Abbot. So it sounds already a little bit informed by a background that was very well known to Americans, sermons, right? But that was the time, so it's quite interesting to read it. And while I was upstairs, I was looking at the books in the shelf in, in room A. There, this is the original edition from 1906. It was published by the Open Court Publishing Company in Chicago. And there's a second copy up there. And the second copy actually has a name in it. And on the second page, it has a dedication by Nyugen Senzaki, handwritten to the owner of the book, speaking about how Soen Shaku is the one responsible for Nyogen Senzaki being in America. And it's from 1937 or something like that, the, the inscription. So this here is what came out of Soen Shaku going around in the United States and uh, writing about it.
was actually D.T. Suzuki. And at points, he took quite some license. For the first time, the Michel Moore from the University of Hawaii wrote about this and started to compare the actual originals that are there in, Jap in Japanese and comparing to what D.T. Suzuki made out of it. And it's remarkable to see to see it in a way that it was adapting it to the Western mindset so that we could understand, not thinking of it as an adulteration or saying something that is wrong. Yeah. Let me read you a little portion from a chapter that's called Spiritual Enlightenment. But before I start, I will give you a chance to move. Now, this is Dr. Suzuki's voice, really, of what Shaku Soen, Soen, Shaku, Kogaku Soen wrote. The chapter is called Spiritual Enlightenment. There are many characteristic points of divergence between religion and philosophy, though they have so much in common that some scholars, broadly speaking, take religion for practical philosophy and philosophy for speculative religion. The difference between the two, however, is not merely that of practicability and theorization. It is, in my judgment, more deeply rooted and fundamental. What is it then? I believe that that which makes religion what it is in contradistinction to philosophy or ethics, consists in the truth that it is essentially founded on facts of one's own spiritual experience, which is beyond intellectual demonstrability and which opens a finite mind to the light of universal effulgence. In short, spiritual enlightenment is indispensable in religion, while philosophy is mere intellection. By spiritual enlightenment, I mean a man's becoming conscious through personal experience of the ultimate nature of his inner being. This insight breaks as it were the wall of intellectual limitation and brings us to a region which has been hitherto concealed from our view. The horizon is now so widened as to enable our spiritual vision to survey the totality of existence. As long as we groped in the darkness of ignorance, we could not go beyond the threshold of individuation. We could not recognize the presence of a light whose most penetrating rays reveal all the mysteries of nature and mind. The spirit has found that the light is shining within itself, 
even in its fullest glory, that it even partakes something of the universal light that is blundered miserably in seeking its own ground outside of itself, that Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, which is and which was and which is to come, is no more nor less than itself. And it is though this kind of enlightenment only that we fully satisfy our innermost spiritual yearnings and groanings. Without this, religion loses its significance, becoming merely an applied philosophy or system of metaphysics. The enlightenment which thus constitutes the basis of the religious life is altogether spiritual and not intellectual. The intellect in its very nature is relative and cannot transcend its own limitations. It is dualistic, no matter how high it may take a flight. It always needs an object with which to deal, and it never identifies itself with it, for it cannot do so without destroying itself. There must be the I and the not-I whenever intellection takes place. Self-alienation or keeping itself aloof from the object on which it exercises itself is the raison d'être of intellect, being its strongest as well as its weakest point. Imagine hearing something like this for the first time without having done any zazen, without having uh, had access to a practice of introspection, to a practice of embodying that non-intellectual, non-dualistic mode of being. It would go right over your head it's even hard to read now. And it's very clear, once you have read a little bit of Diti Suzuki, how much of this is from his side in helping the Western mindset as, as he recognized it at that time. It's quite interesting. But the main points are still the same. How often do you hear that the two-dimensional world is not it? The opening of the Dharma eye. The opening of your heart as well. Where no dualistic distinction attains. We heard it this morning in Shinjin Mei on believing in mind. The danger that Shinjin Mei and this, what I just read, have in common is that if we stop 
on the level of words, we will end up in a dead end eventually. Shaku Soren was a practitioner. When he spoke about it, it was the expression of his own understanding. And again, he said in this little excerpt that I just read, that one has to come to that experience, to that knowing, or to the not knowing, whatever word we use, it is wrong, through your own life. And that's why we are here. That's why we get together here. That's why we subject ourselves to these forms, to these rules, to these schedules that in the end help to eliminate the distance between what is me and what is not me. The I and the not I, as Kogaku so and said it. Subject and object. The subject is the subject to the object. We read that this morning. It hurts to even think about those lines. But that's what it is. It's the act that is described by these words. It's the feeling. It's the presence. It's the passion of being alive fully without that discriminating, discursive thinking interfering with what naturally unfolds in front of us at that very moment. And that is what Chakusoen has brought to us. For us, he is very important because he was the first one of the Rinzai tradition to come. But that said, he brought Senzaki-san, Nyogen Senzaki, over here. But it's interesting, they were not the only ones. So we talked about a very shortly, Imakita Kosen. Imakita Kosen was the teacher of Kogaku Soen. And he was really important because he was one of the first Rinzai teachers in Japan who opened up this kind of study to lay people. All of this used to be monks, 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 monks. There were a few nuns too but it was very institutionalized in Japan. But bringing it and opening up as a practice to everybody was very, very important. Some of us are ordained, but there is no prerequisite for any of this to be ordained. It is a role that we play. It's a function that we dedicate ourselves to, but it doesn't mean that our practice is any different than yours. Mm -hmm. 
or that there is anything that is not accessible to you because you're not this or that. I believe you all are human beings. And as such, you are all Buddhas, like everything. Hakuin Zenji Sazen Wasano, Shujo Honrai Hotoke Nari. All sentient beings are primordially Buddha from the beginning. So seeing that expression coming out of Imakita Kosen and opening up this practice to lay practitioners and that way also to the West is tremendously important. What would be the chance if Shakusoen had come over here and looked for monks and talked to them like this? You want to become a monk? Probably there wouldn't be much of Rinzai Zen around. So having it open and Shakusoen being empowered to be a teacher also to the non-ordained is really important. The Japanese terms shukke is leaving the home and then there are the other ones that are the zaike, the ones who are still outside of the family. But that should not be. And we are trying very hard here at the Zen Studies Society to make it so that we all understand that this is, uh, if it's not inclusive for everybody, it is not Mahayana Buddhism. So that we have to thank Imakita Kosen. Did Kogaku So and So and Shaku have any any successes? Yeah, he did. The most important one, his name was Tetsuo Sokatsu. He became So and Shaku's Dharmaya at the age of twenty nine. He went all around Japan, a pilgrimage of great Zen temples. And then he went outside of Japan, going to what's called Myanmar now, Burma, to Sri Lanka and to India, where following the example of his teacher, he lived with barefoot sadhus, Theravada monks as well. And Sokatsu opened his hermitage, his temple, also to lay practice. And opening up there the possibility of Dharma transmission to a lay person for the first time in Japan. That is quite significant. At the end of World War II, he closed the, the temple, but the lay practice was continued by his Dharma heir, Koun Roshi. Now, this Tetsuo Sokatsu also came to America in 1906. We don't hear much about it, but in 1906, Sokatsu went to California, to San Francisco, with a group of 14 students. And some of the students we know. One of them was Goto Zuigan, Goto Zuigan Roshi, 
who became later quite known. He was the teacher of Walter Nowick, an American Moonspring Her Hermitage in Maine. Uh, but Goethe Zuigan is also the teacher of Mori Naga Soko. You probably read the book. What's the title? Uh, Novice. Novice to Master. And it's, he talks about his continuous stupidity, right? So, through that line, go to Zuigan, we got some more of the Zen to America. There is a, Ursula Roshi who is the only lay successor to Morinaga Soko, who is a Daishu in West in California still. But the other one is Shigetsu Sasaki. Those in New York might know Sokean. Sokean Shigetsu Sasaki. He founded the first Zen organization in America. Soke and Shigetsu Sasaki lived from 1882 until 1945 and it was called the Buddhist Society of America. Now it is known as the first Zen Institute of America. He came with his teacher Tetsuo Sokatsu and actually one really nice tidbit is here that when he came with him, he already was his successor, but he was married something that is unthinkable earlier in the history of uh, be, being a successor and, and leading uh, at that level. So he came to San Francisco as well in 1906. He moved to New York City and there he founded the first Zen Institute of America the Buddhist Society of America. His wife died, so he got married again to one of his students, Ruth Fuller Sasaki, who then later went back to Japan and lived in a temple there. Ruth Fuller Sasaki. He died in 1945 without having any Dharma heir. But he had students who we know. Alan Watts was one of his students. Other students besides his wife, Mary Farkas, who ran the first Zen Institute for a very, very long time. All of that goes back to the fact that Shakusoren came to that parliament of the world's religions. This picture that we have of him is one of the nicest pictures I've seen. He's gazing at us. Most other pictures, he, do, he looks into a different direction, trying to look a little fierce. But here, this is quite soft. And as somebody in this tradition, I have quite a deep gratitude for that this happened, that he 
came over here and set off a chain of events that brings us together today, 100 years after his passing. And it allows us to ask ourselves, what will it be? What will be said 100 years after I pass? What can I do to not just live my life in that cage of intellection, in that straight jacket of an I am self that has the sole interest in affirming itself? and affirming its supremacy. Sishin offers many, many ways to run into that I am self and to feel it. Like right now, somebody is thinking, I hope he picks up that water (laughs) so I can move. The central word there is I. That's one of the opportunities. Well, it's not my job to torture you. Now, even after you moved, you will learn that it's just a slightly different, but equally or differently uncomfortable position. (laughs) And that's okay. That is a big, big part of this practice, learning about all of this. And not running away. There is this first reaction. I used to go to Seshin and on on the train in Austria many years ago and I felt like a piece of cattle going to the slaughterhouse (laughs) even though I wanted to go I bought the ticket you know I bought the ticket every time you hand them you go and you hand the money what are you doing you have that feeling oh my god what are you doing to yourself and then the closer you came I came with the train the more it was quite interesting. And the, the first center I went to in Austria, I told you about in the past, it used to be uh, a senior residence for blind people. So it was really dilapidated. The decor was rather lacking, right? And it was on the top of a hill. And it was in the country, the Austrian country. And this was in the early 80s, which for those of you who are older is recently, but for for the ones who were not alive then is ancient past. And sometimes when I think about it, the attitude of the people at that time might as well have been in the ancient past because a Buddhist center is not something that you find in rural Europe at all. 
So it was quite a struggle establishing it. And I remember arriving, first you take the train on the main line, then you have to get off the, the fast, the express train, and you take a local train that stops on every stop, and then you go five more stops, and then there you go on to one of those sidelines. That is only one rail that goes through the countryside. And it, it, of course, it happened to be when there was session there, half of the car would be full with people going there. And I remember coming to the center, which is on, was on a hill high up, and on the bottom there was the train stop. And there were two old elderly what would we say to that? Farmers, women, sitting at a bench next to the stop in their nice outfit with a headscarf and everything. They were just sitting there and watching what was, what was going on. And so we came and we, we exited the train. And they looked at us. And then one said to the other, eh, here they come again. They're going, they're going up the hill now. And then they sit around for a week and don't talk. Nah, I can't understand that. So we went up. And after the retreat, we went down. And of course, the ladies were sitting there. Ah. They're done not speaking. <laughs> so that was the general attitude that was there, quite different than now. Uh, if you can find something in your practice, in your lives, that has that pioneer spirit of bringing that openness and opening up, no matter in what kind of practice, please do it. This practice here, I sometimes compare it to uh, the, the various practices are, it's, it's like finding the right clothes that fit you. If you don't like to wear tight pants, don't. If you like to do Zen practice in this way, Wonderful. In no way is it superior to any other practice that is taken seriously. And that's something that I want to really state strongly. It is just one way. I can say for myself, it works for me. It has helped me a tremendous lot. Doesn't mean I didn't think it. When is he ringing the bell? That's something we all go through. So don't be discouraged by that. But in order to arrive at a decision like that or to know it, I really urge you to use this time that we have together, to use the time to let yourself fully be embraced by this and to be open especially to the things, the feelings, the sensations, the thoughts that you're not used to.
the thoughts that might otherwise scare you. If something scary happens, please do not run away. Continue to breathe and see if you can work with it. All we have to do is to live from this moment to the next. All ideas about doing things right, all ideas of gaining this, shedding that, are superfluous. We don't even have to be afraid of dying. It's not happening right now. Even the thought, we all will die, is something extraneous. It's extra, it's added. Let's return to the essentials. Let's return to the essentials and give each other the support and the space that is needed to do it safely, to do it as gently as we can, but certainly vigorously. For that reason, so we all practice together, tomorrow we'll have a whole afternoon of sitting. There will be no distraction. I don't have to see, sit here and talk to you. You don't have to listen to the words that are coming out. Tomorrow we'll just all sit together. Session to bring the heart together. Kokoro otsuku. And to touch the heart at the same time. And for that, we thank Shakusoen, who brought us together. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.